1: the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it.
2: This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy.
1: The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today.
2: It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the
1: US. Is our country. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, an economyofone.com. An economyofone.com as is our Facebook, An Economy of One. Well, this is the uh, pretty much the last show of the year. So uh, I want to talk about next year a little bit. Uh, we've gotten. A little bit of indication from our first lady that she's feeling hopelessness, hopelessness for the first time. Well, I don't agree with that, but I want to take a look at what I think is going to happen in 2017 from an economic standpoint. Now, many people, everything revolves around jobs, and many people think that jobs are essentially the lifeblood of the economy. I don't disagree with that. But we get a lot of information that technology, trade, advancements in different fields causes the loss of jobs. Now, uh, Joseph Sumpeter was a, uh, an economist way back when, and, and he coined the phrase creative destruction, meaning that one, phrase, uh, one part of the economy, as it advances, will destroy a previous part of the economy. And temporarily, that will unemploy people. But in the long run, and the long run can be a relative term, I mean, I in this day and age, I think the long run is two to three years, not really, you know, a hundred years in, in the long run. But uh, in the long run, everybody is better off. Now, if we take a look at history, in 1910, there were 13.5 million agricultural workers in the United States. In 1950, that was less than 10 million agricultural workers in the United States. Today, there's just over 2 million people working in agriculture. Now, you could look at those numbers and say, this is devastating. We, we've destroyed the agricultural business. Um, not true turns out that farm output grew by more than 50% between 1910 and 1950. Since 1950, farm output is up over 180%. Now, farming is much more productive today thanks to investments in all kinds of stuff, the tools, the machinery, technology, the fertilizers, The seeds themselves. So food is a lot more affordable today, and far fewer people go hungry. U.S. manufacturing is on a similar path. People say we've got to bring back manufacturing jobs. We've lost manufacturing in this country. We don't produce anything here anymore. Well, let's take a look at the numbers. In... 1979, the late 70s, manufacturing jobs in the U.S. was at 19.6 million. Most recently, about a month ago, manufacturing employment was down to 12.2 million. That's a loss of 38% of the manufacturing sector jobs. Now, that will support the argument that manufacturing is done, that we don't make anything in the U.S. anymore. Well, it turns out that our production has more than doubled since 1979. Just like agriculture, just like farming, private investment and new and improved tools, machinery, technology has improved manufacturing, productivity, and output. So we're actually producing more in the United States than we did in 1979. Same can be said for the trade picture. In 1950, U.S. exports came in at 4.2% of gross domestic product. Imports were 3.9%. That means we had a trade surplus. Total trade equaled 8.17% of GDP. In 2015, exports jumped to 12.5% of GDP and imports were fifteen point five percent and total trade was twenty eight percent of the US economy now we are running a trade deficit but too much emphasis is put on that And we've had guests on our show that talked about that says law says the products are always bought ultimately with other products The market economy, one must produce marketable goods or service in order to be able to purchase goods and service, including imports. This is, in essence, growing imports reflect an an expanding economic growth. So in the end, investments in innovation and technology drive increased productivity, higher earnings generate new products and industries, and provide you and me with lower costs and more choices. Trade expands opportunities for U.S. businesses and workers and, again, benefits the consumer. That's you and me. In 2016, the U.S. economy in real terms, that's inflation-adjusted terms, is more than seven times larger than it was in 1950. Now that's decades of significant technological advancement and expanded international trade. In 1950, 45 million people were employed in the United States. Today, more than a hundred and forty-five million people are working. Per capita income has quadrupled since 1950. So these technological advancements and expanded trade do not result in the destruction of U.S. jobs and diminished earnings. It's just the opposite. Now, are there problems with the U.S. economy? Absolutely. Absolutely. We have our issues. But I'm telling you, the issues boil down to several very basic things. Those issues are taxes, regulations, government spending and debt, and monetary policy. Now, the United States used to be the leader in the world of advancing free trade. Now we're retreating from that global leadership. I'm concerned with President-elect Donald Trump from the standpoint of saying he's going to bring jobs back to the United States. That he's going to penalize American companies who leave and try to bring their product back. He's going to put tariffs on things. All of that is negative to a growth environment for our economy. Now, I'm hoping that his economic advisors and members of his cabinet convince him that what makes a good populist speech is not necessarily good economic policy President Obama has put in more regulations than any president before him by the end of this year he will have put in place over ninety thousand pages in the federal registry this year alone one year multiply that by the last eight years and you can see part of why we're in the mess we're in government spending is is out of hand out of hand and our debt at twenty trillion dollars when President Obama took office it was about half that so he has added about a trillion dollars plus on our national debt per year on average since he's been in office a third of our government spending is on entitlements a third is on the national debt will be long before either one of those two items will consume virtually the entire budget of the United States government now Will they just print more money? Sure. Will they create more debt? Sure. And if it wasn't for the fact that the world loves the dollar, we would have some problems now, I think. Would we have problems like Venezuela? I don't think so. Or Zimbabwe? I don't think so. But problems nonetheless. So the hope is, rather than hopelessness, The hope is that a businessman as President of the United States versus a bureaucrat and career politician as President of the United States will bring some economic principles and a bottom line to the government. Government is not the dispenser of hope. Government is the roadblock to advancement. As I've said before, hope is optimism with no action. You need to have action, and you need to have individual action. Hence the name, the economy of one. I firmly believe that. It's up to you and me, the individual, to create wealth, productivity, income, a future for ourselves and our families, not government. Not government. No government can do that. Coming up next, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about a uh, financial strategy I noticed out there that kind of involves the concept of a lottery ticket in the energy market. I'll tell you how those two things connect next.
2: An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
1: Someone recently started buying lottery tickets in the energy market. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is somebody, and we don't know who, somebody is making a bold bet that oil is going to be at $100 a barrel. Now, currently oil is in uh, probably the mid-50s, but somebody is buying what's called call options now a call is a form of a derivative there's two types of options out there calls and puts and there's essentially four different ways of investing you can buy a call you can sell a call you can buy a put or sell a put today we're just going to talk about calls and someone we don't know who but someone we can see is buying lots and lots of call options for oil at $100 a barrel by December of 2018. Now, what's this mean? What this means is somebody is spending money, they're buying a promise from somebody that will allow them to purchase oil at $100 a barrel, regardless of what the price of oil is on the open market. Now, why would anybody do that? Why would you spend money to do that? Well it's strictly a speculative investment right now the options outstanding somebody has spent about a million dollars buying those options and they're betting that between now and December of 2018 two years from now that oil may be close to $100 or maybe even over $100 and they're betting better than a million dollars that that's the case now what would cause that I mean Uh, OPEC has agreed for the first time in 15 years to cut back on production. Well, they're not going to cut back enough where oil gets to $100 a barrel. I'm guessing these people are speculating that between now and December of 2018, there's going to be some type of geopolitical event that triggers a spike in the price of oil, no matter how brief it is. So, there's confidence in the market that oil is going to go up in the months ahead, maybe. Depends on any if any of the uh, OPEC nations decide to cheat or not. Now, we both know what the energy market's like. We both know most of the countries in OPEC. Do you think they'll cheat? Uh, of course they will. Of course they will. They have no intention of honoring any public cutback in in the daily supply of oil so absolutely they're gonna cheat but how bad they're gonna cheat will determine how much it affects the price of a barrel of oil but somebody is betting over the next two years something something unknown right now probably a black swan out there is going to cause the price of energy to spike and the closer the price of energy gets to $100 a barrel The more money these people will make on their call options. So they're putting in a little more than a million dollars so far, and it could be worth multiple times that if the price of oil futures heads up anytime soon. Now, it's possible, it's possible that somebody out there is hedging their position. But I think it's more likely somebody is just rolling the dice to see over the next two years if there's a spike in oil, no matter how brief it is. If the spike in oil is just for a few days, that's all they need. That's all they need. I guarantee you that these options outstanding are programmed into a computer that's programmed into a market that if they hit a certain bogey number, that... They're going to reverse that position, take the money and run. I mean, if you put in a million dollars and six months from now it's worth three million, wouldn't you take the money and run? Or would you try to ride the ride to December of 2018 to see if you could make even more? I'd take the money and run. Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. So if you get greedy, you're going to get slaughtered. But it's interesting to see that somebody is betting big money. On the price of oil going up significantly sometime in the next two years. So, the individual option market doesn't have much activity in the energy area for these options for $100 a barrel December calls. But the institutional side has a lot of activity. So, we'll see what happens, but it's interesting to see these anomalies out there because it happens and every every transaction every option that somebody buys somebody sells so there's always somebody on the other side of this transaction that is betting the exact opposite for the same amount of money that the person who purchased it is betting so one of them's going to be right and one of them's going to be wrong They both can't be right, and they both can't be wrong. So it'll be interesting to watch and see. Coming up next, one of my favorites, Gordon Chang, is going to be joining me, and we're going to talk to him about China. Big news. Gary Rathbun, an
2: economy of one.
1: Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Gordon Chang. He's a lawyer and author who's lived in China and Hong Kong for almost two decades, most recently in Shanghai, working as counsel to the American law firm Paul Weiss. He's the author of The Coming Collapse of China, as well as a contributor at Forbes.com. You can find his blog over at worldaffairsjournal.org. Gordon, welcome to An Economy of One. It's good to talk to you again. Thank you so much, Gary. You know, it's, uh, it's hard for me. I almost don't know where to begin in talking about China, so I, I guess I'll, I'll start with the most current thing and work backwards. Um, Janet Yellen raised interest rates here uh, recently, 25 basis points. What kind of a ripple effect does that have for China and, and their economy?
3: Well, they had an historic route in the bond market on Thursday, just a few hours after the Fed increased rates. And that shows the fragility of the Chinese financial system because you had the benchmark 10-year futures uh, stop trading because wow. it hit daily limits. That was the first time that ever occurred. They had to inject uh, $22 billion on Thursday to keep the markets going, and they had to put in an additional $57 billion on Friday. Um, so there have been troubles in the bond market, and that's an indication that really the Chinese leaders have lost the cue cards.
1: Now, uh, just for clarification, when you say uh, 20-some billion and 50-some billion, is that the, the dollar equivalent of the yuan they're putting in, or are they actually putting dollars into their economy?
3: Uh, those are uh, the uh, U.S. dollar equivalent, okay. um, because this was short-term facilities that oh. were meant to provide liquidity um, when apparently it had dried up.
1: Now you know I've I've read a lot I've read a lot of your columns and and other people's columns. They're talking about uh, capital leaving China, leaving the economy, leaving the country. Uh, clarify that for me. What exactly do, do you mean when when you say capital or wealth is leaving the country?
3: Well, last year there was a one trillion dollars of net capital outflow, according to Bloomberg. And that is money leaving um, in all sorts of ways. So, first of all, there are some investments that have been officially approved, but also there's been money that's been smuggled out um, through fake invoicing, through containers, through other means. And so basically the Chinese people and Chinese enterprises have lost confidence in their own economy and even in their own country. So they're trying to get their money out as fast as they can. And despite the imposition of draconian capital controls, some off the books, uh, some informal, um, you know, the, the outflow this year will approach um, last year's total. Um, So this is a continuing problem for China. And of course, once you start to put in capital controls, people don't put money into the country. So they've got another problem and they've not only got money leaving, but they have money not coming in to replace it.
1: Now, when money leaves, I mean, the purpose of doing that is to to preserve the value of that currency. I mean, are they taking it and converting it to dollars and outside the country so it, it maintains the value instead of the depreciation of the currency?
3: That's absolutely right. Uh, we see um, the renminbi being converted into greenbacks. Um, also, um, when those are restricted, they've got other techniques like buying gold. And mm-hmm. the newest way, of course, is to buy Bitcoin. Um, there are all sorts of these techniques, but the idea is to get out of the renminbi because the renminbi has fallen more than 6% against the dollar this year. If there were no capital controls and if the currency were allowed to float, the renminbi would be essentially a worthless currency right now so the only thing that's keeping it together is the Chinese central government
1: now you know I probably probably twice a week I get asked uh, about people in China Chinese companies uh, buying stuff in the United States buying real estate buying uh, commercial real estate buying businesses and that kind of stuff and my answer is is always twofold one I don't care as long as the check clears and two I'm assuming that this is another way of uh, these companies and individuals preserving the value of their wealth by buying dollar-denominated assets also. Is that, is that why they do it?
3: That's the reason why most of these investments are made. Um, you know, the Chinese central government does strategically buy uh, U.S. technology companies, mm-hmm. but for the most part, um, your answer is correct. So, for instance, you know, in New York City, <laughs> excuse me, Um, where I live close to, you know, those big condominium towers that are going up are are fueled by Chinese money. Mm. And and that's also true if you go around the U.S., Um, but it's not just the U.S. You have uh, the Chinese investing in the U.K., Australia, Hong Kong, um, places where they don't have the renminbi as the currency.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm old enough to remember uh, I had the same conversation with people uh, 25 years ago about Japan buying everything in the united states and and i remind people of that and and ask them uh, uh, any of us speak in japanese you know right we're, right. we're not going to speak chinese 10 years from now because they own the own the country uh you know while we're on the currency something that occurred to me today that i hadn't read about uh recently at all and i think you and i talked about it in one of our previous conversations and that was about a year ago uh the imf uh, gave the option or paved the way or whatever they did to allow the Chinese currency to you become part of the special drawing rights and I think that was supposed to happen in in October of 16 uh, I haven't read anything about that what what happened with that
3: well the the, the renminbi did become um, included in the special drawing rights okay. and this was an effort to internationalize the currency and so the IMF essentially um, was giving China an encouragement to liberalize. But what happened, of course, is because of all the problems in 2015, you had the mid-June stock collapse, you had the shock devaluation of the currency in August. And so there has been a retreat in the internationalization of the Chinese money since then. Its use has been declining outside of China And um, people don't want to hold it um, for the reasons we've been talking about. So, essentially, um, the IMF made a political decision. Um, Christine Lagarde, IMF director, managing director, stood behind the Chinese, and they've taken her to the cleaners because instead of internationalizing their currency since that decision, Mm -hmm. um, they have uh, actually retreated, making it less usable.
1: So, so the the doom and gloom, the the apocalyptic statements uh, when that happened in '15, um, just didn't materialize at all. I mean, everybody, I mean, the, the people were saying we're going off the dollar reserve as the world's currency and that kind of stuff. That just didn't materialize at all
3: no that didn't materialize and what is the world's strongest currency right now well it just happens to be the greenback right. and um if donald trump is able to engineer a boom you know three and a half four four and a half percent growth by reducing taxes and regulation we're going to have an even stronger currency and it's going to become a problem because it of course um inhibits our ability to export goods so there, there is, of course, in economics, everything is two-sided. But what this shows is confidence in the United States. People want to hold the dollar. And so, you know, far from um, no longer being the world's reserve currency, um, it is becoming even more dominant. Because as much as you might say we have problems in the U.S., look around the rest of the world. I mean, who wants to hold a the euro these days? Right. Who wants to hold these other currencies? So it is dollars.
1: Yeah, I, I've told people, you know, say what you will about America and stuff, but we're the cleanest dirty shirt in the laundry. So, uh, yeah. uh, you know, everybody wants the dollar. Speaking of Donald Trump, what um, you know, I, I, I understand there's there's possible uh, possibilities, some leadership changes in China uh, next year. What politically? What 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 are the Chinese leadership? What are they thinking about Donald Trump? becoming our next president.
3: Uh, you know, in um, March of last year, they were actually cheering the prospect of Trump, because that's when he talked about possibly walking away from the Japan and South Korea mutual defense treaties. They thought that Trump was going to take the U.S. out of Asia. This would prevent this. This would create an historic opportunity. For China to dominate the region. So they were very much in favor of Donald Trump. Now, I'm not so sure. They, they, um, they think they probably can control him, but they're not exactly positive about that. And they know that what Trump can do is disrupt a number of norms that have kept stability in the U.S.-China relationship. Um, you know, these diplomatic principles like the one China policy. Right um don't necessarily serve the United States Trump is going to look at them and Chinese leaders have got to be terrified about the possibility of the US adopting policies which are more pro-US pro international system even and not so pro-China
1: you know and and that uh, I was gonna bring that up because everybody made a big deal about his phone call to the leaders in Taiwan and uh, I've seen both sides uh, of that, where people criticize some of his comments afterwards and that kind of stuff. But um, it, it, that goes back to the one China uh, and Chinese sovereignty and, and those issues. But how big of a deal was it that he had a phone call with with uh, the leaders of Taiwan?
3: I think it was a big deal. I think it was a step in the right direction. Taiwan is a friendly, free society, Mm -hmm. and through our policies of four decades, we've been undermining it to help an authoritarian state that attacks our values across the board. Also, Taiwan is placed in a very strategic location on the globe at the intersection of the South China Sea and the East China Sea Um, in a wartime or a conflict scenario. Uh, taiwan airfields and ports can be used to prevent the Chinese Navy and Air Force from going into the Western Pacific, so we should be doing everything we possibly can to support taiwan and our Our, our China policy does not permit that. Trump is going to change it in all probability in some way, and the change is a good thing i can 't say that what Trump will do will actually um, long-term benefit the United States, but I do know that our current policies are guaranteed to failure, so change is a precondition for moving in the right direction, and we should applaud the president-elect for taking that phone call from uh, Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen.
1: The mainstream media likes to pick on Donald Trump from the standpoint of he's not a career politician, so he's, he's uh, framed as a novice and that kind of stuff. Uh, You know, he is a master negotiator, and you don't get to be worth billions of dollars in this country without being fairly bright and knowing what you're doing in in talking to people and and putting deals together, right?
3: Right. Well, you know, I I think that uh, we are going to see a change in a lot of policies that don't make sense. Um, I mean, there are, of course, as as the media says, you know, there are downsides to the way Trump has handled some of these things. But nonetheless... um, I I think that he gets uh, pretty high marks for what he's been Mm. doing so far um, because he understands that the United States needs to grab the initiative. So, for instance, on this drone seizure by China, which, by the way, was an act of war, you know, our president went missing. He didn't talk about it at his Friday press conference. He avoided a question from Mark Landler of The New York Times on it. And so, you know, people may say Trump shouldn't tweet about it, and, and, you know, that's not a bad argument. But at least we need to have an American leader talk-up this Mm -hmm. issue because it is serious and Trump for credit to his credit did that
1: yeah I I think that uh, being that non-politician being that that uh, that uh, business person uh, is gonna gonna serve us well going forward I I hope that uh, he's able to do all he wants to do Uh, finally Gordon I read one of your your columns recently where you talked about China being part of the WTO, the World Trade Organization, and, and uh, they've been there for 15 years or something, and traditionally, uh, at that point, they're, they're classified or thought of as a, as a market economy, and uh, I think Trump has come out and said he's, he's not supporting them converting to market economy status, uh, I may be wrong on that, but what, how big of a deal is that, finally, uh, to their economy?
3: It's a very big deal for China, because if they have market economy status, it makes it much more difficult for the US, EU, other um, trading blocks to um, pursue anti-dumping uh, mm. remedies. Um, China's accession agreement to the WTO provided that within 15 years, it would automatically be treated as a market economy. At least that's the better reading of some ambiguous words, but nonetheless. China is less a market economy in a non-technical sense than it was um, five years ago. China's moving backwards. (laughs) And so many people don't want to accord China uh, market economy status. And I think that uh, it shouldn't be accorded that because of what it's been doing with some very predatory trade practices. This is a complicated technical issue. But nonetheless, I think that uh, we need to reassess all of this.
1: You know, it's interesting because... uh in preparing to talk to you today one of the things that you had written about that just caught me off guard was china's demographics and i'm used to reading stories about you know the birth death rate in in the united states and even europe uh causing demographic issues never think about that with china because it seems like they have so many people but uh they're going to have some demographic issues a lot faster than they thought they would aren't they
3: Yes, China is in accelerated demographic decline right now. Wow. Um, if you go back five years, people were was, was saying that the workforce would peak in 2016. In fact, the official National Bureau of Statistics said it peaked in 2011. Um, we have the issue of the peaking of the country as a whole, which isn't going to occur in the 2030 time frame, which was official numbers indicated five years ago. Now it could peak as early as 2018, according to some Chinese demographers. Um, this is a, a sign of real problems in China. The U.S., by the way, is pretty good demographically.
1: Well, we've been speaking, uh, spending a little time with Gordon Chang. He's a lawyer and author, lived in China and Hong Kong for almost two decades. Most recently in Shanghai, working as counsel to the American law firm Paul Weiss. He's the author of the upcoming, or I'm sorry, the coming collapse of China. And you can find his stuff, as I do uh, all the time, at Forbes.com as well as his blog over to WorldAffairsJournal.org. Gordon, once again, uh, I'm awed. It's so much fun talking to you. You have so much knowledge of that area. And uh, really appreciate you spending a little time with us today. Thank you so much, Gary. We'll talk to you again soon.
2: An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun.
1: Well, we got some great news. Great news to end the year on, to start the new year, to build my resolutions around. What's the news? The news is that clinical trials from Purdue University found out that eating red meat does not hurt your heart. It does not contribute to cardiovascular disease. Known that all along. I'm a red meat lover. I love it. If it comes from a steer, it's got to be good grilled. So I love red meat. And and you know, way back when, when I was much younger, there was a study done. They came out and said, "Oh, you got to cut red meat out of your diet. It's bad for you. If you cut red meat out of your diet, you'll live 90 days longer." And I got to thinking about that, and I'm thinking over my lifetime how much red meat I'd be able to eat for a mere price of 90 days at the end. And I decided the 90 days wasn't worth it. Well, now the study comes out and says uh, eating more than the recommended daily amount of red meat does not affect heart disease risk factors, such as blood pressure and blood cholesterol. In fact, it may even lower blood pressure. Red meat is nutrient-rich food, not only a source for protein, but also bioavailable iron. I mean, we knew this. We knew red meat was was okay, high protein. It's just the do-gooders out there want to control what's in your life. You're too stupid to make decisions for yourself. We know that. They know that. So uh, now the study shows that all of this angst for years how long have we heard this stuff years that red meat is bad for you eat fish and chicken fish and chicken and then it was go vegetarian then it was go vegan my goodness why don't these people just eat grass and be done with it i enjoy red meat it's a wonderful thing now the epa is going after uh, steers and red meat from a different angle. That they burp too much and expel too much methane, which is a greenhouse gas, something like 10 times worse than carbon dioxide. And to save the planet, we got to kill all the steers. Well, that's not going to work either. They, they lost their candidate that will back them up on that. But uh, um, it, it, it's good to see These kind of experiments. Now, do I take this as gospel, too? Of course not. It's a college. Purdue University. Good school. But could their research be flawed? Could it be found that red meat is actually bad for you 50 years from now? Maybe. Maybe. But for now, I'm going to take this as uh, good enough reason to uh, eat red meat when I want to. Now, I'm waiting for the study to go along with this that says donuts and chocolate milkshakes are okay for you too, because if that study comes out, uh, I'm going to be in uh, hog heaven, no pun intended, uh, for the rest of my life. So so red meat does not hurt your heart, new study finds, and it can be actually good for your cardiovascular system and blood pressure and cholesterol. I want you to have a great day, be an individual, be self-reliant, be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathbun. We'll see you next time.
2: This is our country.
0: The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.